This program does not provide medical advice. We assume no liability for the information provided on MindForce Radio. Please consult your physician before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. This is Roger LaPointe, and I have known Bob Whalen for many years at this point, and he is one of the most intense individuals you will ever meet. Go MindForce Radio. From Mind Force Radio, this is Natural Strength Night with Maximum Bob. On Natural Strength Night, we don't talk about the other things Bob likes to talk about. Tonight, we only talk strength training. When I say strength training, I don't mean training like punk-ass goons in the muscle magazines who jacked up on juice, steroids, and PEDs. I mean natural strength. Strength built on good food, heavy weights, and no shortcuts. If you want to learn about real natural strength, weight training the right way, the old school way, stick around. Bob and his friends just might teach you something. He's here, the host of Natural Strength Night, Maximum Bob Whalen. Tonight, our guest is Roger LaPointe. I've known Roger for almost 20 years. He was just out of college and working for York Barbell when I first met him. He has a lot of interesting stories about his time at York. We'll be talking about it tonight. Roger practices what he preaches and is pound for pound one of the strongest guys around in natural strongman competitions and Olympic lifting. He has overhead pressed Atlas stones heavier than his own body weight. Roger is the CEO and owner of Atomic Athletic a great company that was a sponsor at several of my Capital City Strength Clinics. Atomic Athletic makes some of the toughest hardcore strength training equipment you will find. I've bought many items from Roger, including four granite stones, farmer's walk utensils, thick bars, chalk, and many other items. If you want to buy strongman stones, be sure to get them from Roger. Atomic Athletic stones are chiseled out of granite and are not the cheap stones on the market that are made of concrete that crack and break when you drop them. Everything from Atomic Athletic is top quality. Be sure to visit Roger's website at AtomicAthletic.com. That's A-T-O-M-I-C, Athletic.com. Roger, it's great to have you on the show, and welcome to Natural Strength Night. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know you're a big Shemansky fan. What is this huge event I'm hearing about? Well, uh, <laughs> Norbert Shemansky, who was once called the master lifter, I think in uh, uh, Iron Master magazine, uh, there's a great article about him. Well, the master <laughs> is turning 91 this year. And wow. Yeah, <laughs> we're having a... Uh, Big birthday party for Norb, uh, Saturday, May 30th at 5 p.m. And this is an open event. 
you just have to RSVP, pay for your uh, dinner ticket, and show up. And the real the the reason Norb is doing this at 91 is he really wants lifters, past lifters, and when I say lifters, anybody who's interested in the history of this sport, you know, if they're a power lifter, if they do the all-rounds, if, it, you know, they've, they barely know what the Olympic lifts are, they just started in a CrossFit gym, something like that, uh, that's okay because Norb understands the, probably better than anybody, the concept of having a uniting figure who uh, can bring everybody together, kind of like the uh, uh, old-timers dinner that's on the East Coast. But this will be mm-hmm. in the Midwest, in uh, Livonia, yeah, Michigan. Great. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it's a fantastic thing. Norb wants real people to get together in real time, face-to-face. And, it, you know, it, as he said, they have the modern terms, networking. What is your opinion of CrossFit? Uh, you know, CrossFit's probably been the best thing that's happened to Olympic lifting since y- you had the uh, guys like Norb competing in the Olympics because it's really brought new numbers to Olympic lifting. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but roughly... When I was the Olympic lifting advisor at the York Barbell Company, there were approximately 2,000 registered members of USA Weightlifting, which is you know the Olympic Committee, so that you can compete and be in competition, which is nothing. I believe it was the smallest sport in the USA Olympics. Uh, hmm. Yeah, it was... It, considered a dying sport they didn't know what to do and crossfit came in i heard that it is now up to like 16,000 registered members so it, you know it, it's a fascinating thing to me because uh while i'm not a crossfitter i understand the basic concept of crossfitting tends to be a repetitions kind of thing almost a mm-hmm. hit philosophy mixed with free weights and body weight stuff, which mm-hmm. is, you know, exactly the opposite of something like the Olympic lifts, where you're going for a lift. And technically, you can go out on the platform, do one snatch and one clean and jerk, and you could be done. You get three attempts, of course, but you don't have to take them. You just have to do two successful lifts and you're done for one repetition max. So, it, you know, for me, I find the CrossFit thing kind of exciting because all these people are falling in love with Olympic lifting sort of as an afterthought of the CrossFit thing because they push mm-hmm. the Olympic lifts, uh, especially things like doing overhead snatch grip squats uh, for repetitions, Mm -hmm. uh, repetition hang cleans, things like that. Well, these are all training lifts for the competition lifts. And, you know, it's really brought 
a lot of people into the sport, and the numbers make for better competitions. I have mixed feelings about CrossFit. I like, I, I admire CrossFit in a lot of ways. I love their hardcore attitude, and I love how they've revitalized Olympic lifting. Overall, I do like them. The only criticism I would say is that they just have to be a little more careful. They've got to find a way to reduce injuries. I think they have some people doing snatches that have no, that have no business doing them. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and it, quite honestly, they have, mm -hmm. it, just like when I go to high school, uh, because, you know, I sell weightlifting equipment. I'm, you know, a weightlifter. Uh, when I go into high schools, I see a lot of high school coaches pushing the Olympic lifts, which is mm -hmm. great, except when they these some of these guys really shouldn't be coaching the lifts. They've never done them. They don't understand how to do them properly. Uh, they haven't spent the time learning to coach. When I first started selling for myself, when I had opened Atomic Athletic, one of my early customers was Mike Gittleson at the University of Michigan, who is their head strength coach, you know, for football, all that sort of thing. And I'm from Michigan sure. originally. I grew up in the Detroit area. So uh, even though I went to Michigan State, for me to sell a deal to the University of Michigan and then also be called in to meet with the coach one-on-one, -on -one, that, that's pretty cool. It's you know, oh, yeah. like I, I went to Michigan State, but hey, you know that's U of M. That's that's a big deal. So I get called in, and one of the first things Mike said to me is, "So I I've done some research on you. I understand you're Olympic an Olympic lifter." I said, "Yeah." He says, "So you're gonna try to sell me bumper plates and bars and get all my football players uh, doing snatches?" I said, "No." He says, really? Why not? Maybe it's a good thing. I said, you know what? If you've got guys who already know how to do it, fantastic. But personally, it took me somewhere between three and four years to do 10 technically perfect snatches in a row at 90%. As a football coach, you don't have that time. You've got to get guys, you know, potentially right out of a high school program over the summer on playing Big Ten football. That, I think, it, just in my opinion, is the error with CrossFit. Some of the CrossFit coaches are really fantastic, and certainly some of the guys they have send around, send it around the country uh, mm -hmm. teaching Olympic lifting to people are some of the best ever. Fred Lau does it, my coach in Michigan. You know, this guy right. was in the Olympics three times. Uh, I believe he's still got the national record for the lightest guy to clean and jerk over 400. Uh, it, you know, as a 165, he did that. And he still competes. From a coaching perspective, Fred's as good as it gets. So that's great, but you are not turned into an Olympic lifting coach with one Saturday morning class. I don't care what anybody says or, you know, what. Right. I've actually picked up a few clients from CrossFit. I mean, because they quit and came to me. So <laughs> they've helped my business a little bit. But I have mixed feelings, right? I like, I like their, 
I know guys who go there and they love it. And I, I think overall they're good. They just have to, they're, they're a little too rigid sometimes on forcing uh, the Olympic lift down people's throat who shouldn't be doing them. If they, if they just had a little bit of a backup or something, but because I, I have a 51 year old woman and she, they were forcing her to do snatches and she couldn't do it. And they were just, uh, anyways, but now she's training with me. So I'm happy. <laughs> well, it, And you know what? And I have to admit that myself and, you know, Roger LaPointe, as the owner of Atomic Athletic, has benefited from CrossFit injuries, just like you did. And That's right. You know, I, it, right there, I can say I sell more iron boots because of CrossFit, uh, both yep. because they're a great training tool and because they're great for rehabbing lower leg injuries. Uh, and I've sold a lot of Indian clubs. Because of in, injured CrossFitters, you know, guys who, right. uh, it, you know, do injuries to their shoulders, it, you know, and it's to some extent, it's like anything else. When you've got a huge organization like CrossFit, not every mm-hmm. coach is as good as every other coach. You know, if you happen to be able to lift at Mike Bergner's place, in California, he, mm-hmm. he was, you know, he's one of the best Olympic lifting coaches, and both of his kids, I think, have uh, been national champions and to the Olympics. It, you know, that's phenomenal. You know, do yeah. learn your Olympic lifts there. That is great. You would really be missing out if you didn't. Then there are CrossFit facilities that I talk to where the CrossFit thing is almost secondary, and they're doing something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as their main deal. So it, hmm. nothing against Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I, it, you know, CrossFit isn't Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I don't. I, I really don't see how the organization can have the, this huge range of mm-hmm. different things. And then also push their like daily workouts and stuff like that. It, it is confusing to me. It, you know, is CrossFit good? Well, it can be. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not a hit person, but mm-hmm. hit can be good. There are positives yeah. with it. Um, Let's get into that right now, Roger. Let's go to the next question because I was going to ask you as a strength coach. Can you expand a little bit on your personal training philosophy and where you fit, you know, with all these labels in the field? Well, uh, <laughs> it, it, that, that dino thing and the hit thing are an interesting deal. I'm definitely not a hit person. Um, the uh, dino, okay, yeah. It, you know, I love doing things like stone lifting. So uh, the dyno lifting, that it that has an interesting origin. You know, it, it, I think it really started with Brooks Cubic's uh, dinosaur training book, which mm-hmm. is an outstanding book. And Brooks came to one of my events. I used to sell his book. Um, <clears throat> it really popularized some things like stone lifting, thick bar work and dumbbells and uh, the Olympic lifts even, uh, and powerlifting. Mm-hmm. I think Brooks was a competitive powerlifter. Is it good? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And 
I think of myself as a lifter. So uh, what I mean by that is I train to do one repetition maximum lifts. I'm not just an Olympic lifter because I like doing a lot of what some people would call old-style lifts, or if you look in uh, old Ironman or Strength and Health magazines, you will mm-hmm. see some contests that are called odd lift contests. Yeah, that's like and the USAWA, right? Exactly. And that all started with the American Barbell Men Association, the ABBA, which was mm-hmm. founded by, uh, I think, Alan Calvert uh, of the Milo mm-hmm. Barbell Company, but he and Mark Berry, who was the one of the Olympic coaches, one of the Olympic team coaches in the 19th Yeah, and John Grimmick got his start with him before he went to York. Yes, absolutely. So, it, you know, they had something like 55 different lifts in the American Barbell Men Association. Olympic lifting really didn't get back into the Olympics until, I believe, 1928, and there were five lifts. So you had the one-hand snatch, the two-hand snatch, the one-hand clean and jerk, the two-hand clean and jerk, and the two-hand clean and press all with a barbell. And then after the 32 Olympics, they eliminated the two one-hand barbell lifts, and it just became the snatch, the clean and jerk, and the press. Uh, After 1972, they eliminated the press. So today it's only the snatch and the clean and jerk. Personally, I think the worst thing that was ever done to Olympic lifting was eliminating the press. There was good reason for it, and it, you know, I get into the history stuff. I can, I, you know me, Bob. As I, I drill down into things. So, if I'm going to get into it, I really get into it. Uh, and so, like the press, the press was the most popular of the three lifts growing up. Because most people don't realize this, but powerlifting wasn't even invented until the 1950s. But as a kid growing up, I mean, people used to say, because now everyone says, how much can you bench? But right. as a kid in the late 50s and probably through most of the 60s even, people used to say, how much can you press? That was right. the thing people asked you, how much can you press? And then all of a sudden, maybe in late 60s, 70s started changing to how much can you bench but i agree right about the time they eliminated the press is when it seems like the how much can you bench took over so i agree that was a big mistake yeah and they had good reason for doing it uh it became Mm -hmm. extremely hard to judge and right what you because some guys were pressing by bending over so far backwards they were bending over so far backwards, they were almost like doing a standing bench press. Yes. And, it, you know, I know you've seen some of those photos, but some of your listeners probably haven't. It, it is a strange-looking thing to see because mm-hmm. it became a, almost like a weird gymnastic thing. And, That's right. Uh, 
you had some countries where at their nationals, they did a military press the way it was done in the 1930s and the way Bill March did it when he clean and pressed double body weight in the early 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you had guys, especially in the uh, Soviet Union, where they had what was called layback, and it looked like a standing bench press. So whose records were accurate? It, you know, in my opinion, they should have just tightened up the judging instead of eliminating right. the press. But what happened, um, so it's always interesting when rule changes happen, is the guys who didn't have, and women, who didn't have uh, Olympic lifting coaches who really knew what were termed the quick lifts, the snatch and the clean mm-hmm. and jerk. Uh, you know, and it, actually, Norb was considered the very best ever in split cleans and split snatches, where, hmm. uh, you know, today hardly anybody does a split snatch or a split clean. They do a squat snatch or a squat clean. But uh, he was considered just lightning fast. Well, if you were a presser and you didn't have a coach who really knew the, you know, what some guys would call the tricks of Olympic lifting, you Mm -hmm. can do very well in a competition, especially a local level or even a state level competition, if you had a technically legal snatch and a technically legal clean and jerk, but you weren't great at it, if you were a great presser. The difficult part about it. So, you know, then they went to the the bench press. We'll be back with more right after this. This segment brought to you by VitalNutritionStore.com. Did you know that more than 7 million Americans suffer from coronary heart disease, the most common form of heart disease? Regardless of your age or condition, adding Cardio for Life to your daily regime will dramatically improve your cardiovascular condition. Cardio for Life has been the top-selling Enlarginine product in the marketplace now for more than three years. It is also the top-selling product at VitalNutritionStore.com. Formulated by Dr. Harry Elwart, the best-selling author of Let's Stop the Number One Killer of Americans Today, Dr. Harry believes together we can prevent and reverse heart disease. Cardio for Life comes in three wonderful flavors, orange, peach, and grape, and is gluten-free, sugar-free, and sodium-free. Please see our complete line of natural products at vitalnutritionstore.com. That's V-I-T-A-L nutritionstore.com. Randy Roach shocked the world with the release of his first volume of Muscle Smoke and Mirrors several years ago. It was a masterpiece of over 500 pages with such in-depth research and detail that it was not only surprising, but shocking and mind-blowing. It was truly one of the best Iron Game history books ever written. He followed that with Volume 2, another epic book with over 700 pages of equal depth and detail. All serious Iron Game fans need to have these books. Please visit Randy's website at randyroach.ca. That's R-A-N-D-Y-R-O-A-C-H dot C-A. 
Listen to how Iron Game legend and the Iron Master editor, Osmo Kihaw, describes the book Supernatural Strength. Have you ever wondered how much real-world experience authors have when they write books about weight training? Who is that person behind the computer? What do they really know about the Iron Game? If you picked up this book, Supernatural Strength, you have definitely come to the right place. The author, Bob Whalen, has spent several decades in the Iron Game trenches training himself, competing and coaching in powerlifting, earning academic credentials too numerous to mention, and thousands of hours of training and instructing athletes and trainees of all levels at his Washington, D.C. gym since 1990. He's not only devoted his life to motivating and pushing people to heights they have never been to, but elevating the trainees' understanding why certain methods work better than others. Bob is one of the most respected and revered trainers in the business today. This book is sure to surprise and amaze you at the same time. Order now at SupernaturalStrength.com. That's SupernaturalStrength.com. Don't you think it would be so much easier getting into shape if you had a personal coach? Just like all the celebrities do. Well, now you can. Bob Whalen of WebStrengthCoach.com wants to get you out of your rut and coach you to success. He's dedicated to helping you achieve your strength and fitness goals through your hard work and his expert guidance. Bob will help you with strength training, muscle building, fitness, nutrition, and motivation. He'll make sure you achieve your maximum physical potential. You can get one-on-one training with Bob through his website webstrengthcoach.com he will develop a personalized program tailored to your individual needs a program right for you bob will give you feedback after every workout this is old school fitness and nutrition no fads and no gimmicks bob will use proven natural techniques to make sure you are satisfied so visit webstrengthcoach.com today and let bob help you reach your best self webstrengthcoach.com Do you enjoy history without social engineering? Reading about our founding fathers? Economics from a capitalist perspective? Wisdom from modern patriots? Welcome to UncleSamBooks.com, where virtues like rugged individualism, hard work, and the American dream dominate. UncleSamBooks.com. Great books for homeschooling. UncleSamBooks.com. If you want to become as strong and muscular as possible with health in mind and without lowering yourself to using steroids, the best advice can be found in the classic strongman books of long ago. These are the best books ever written on the subjects of strength training, weightlifting, strongman training, iron game history, and old-time physical culture. Many of them can still be found at physicalculturebooks.com. There you will find good, Honest, time-tested wisdom from the great old-time strongmen to maximize your natural muscular and strength potential. Please visit physicalculturebooks.com. Listen to Ken Manny, head strength and conditioning coach at Michigan State University, describe the book Iron Nation. A masterpiece text on some of the most intriguing and compelling personal stories, iron game history, and gut-wrenching training routines ever put to paper. If you truly love hard training without all the frills of pomp and circumstance so common today, you will love Iron Nation. Written by lifters for lifters. If you love weight training, you will love Iron Nation. Order now at ironnation.com. That's I R O N nation.com.
If you would like to promote your business on MindForce Radio, we would love to hear from you. Please let us know if you are interested in a 30- or 60-second voice commercial or a banner website ad. Please contact Bob using the contact information provided on MindForceRadio.com. You're listening to Natural Strength Night on MindForce Radio. Roger, when I first met you in the mid-90s, you know, I can't believe I've known you for 20 years, but um, you worked at the York Barbell Company. That must have been cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was really, really great. Uh, it, it, it was my first job as a professional in the uh, uh, weightlifting industry, or it, as they called it, pop culture, the fitness industry, which is not what I considered it. Uh, it, I was the uh, Olympic lifting advisor and export sales manager when I worked there. Yeah, it was really neat. Uh, it, I had the just tremendous opportunities to meet people. It really set me up for my business and uh, was a heck of a lot of fun. It, it was one of those dream jobs. What was it? Your job, the job that Arnold couldn't get? Yes. <laughs> no, because I heard. I think you and me talked about that once. I think I saw it on your website too. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that and how you you also worked with Jan Dellinger and I think John Grimmick was still working there when you were there too, right? No, John had actually retired at that point, and uh, that's kind of a weird story. I I never had a chance to meet John Grimmick. Uh, with oh, okay. I, I wish I, guess, I had been able to do. He had his first hip break a month after I started lifting there, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something like that. And basically quit meeting people. Um, okay. He, uh, it, you know, the guy being Mr. America and John Grimmick and all that kind of thing, uh, it, you know, it's, it's understandable. He's an older guy with a broken hip. Um, right. So it, I never had a chance to meet him. I met and worked with and trained with or under a lot of guys who knew him. And it, it yeah, was Dick, it, Dick Smitty Smith was there when you were there, right? Yes, yeah, Smitty was my coach. And oh yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, Smitty was the best. Uh, he passed away last August. Uh, but Smitty was technically retired at that point, although he did do uh, specialty tours of the Hall of Fame for people. Mm-hmm. But he coached me, and wow. I learned so much from him. <laughs> you know, wow. I, I, I could do a book just on the things that I learned from Smitty. Uh, he, he was the greatest. But... Smitty also hooked me up with a lot of people. And, you know, he hooked me up with Vic Boff, 
uh, hooked me up with uh, Bill St. John. I was able to meet John Terlazzo. John Terlazzo, the last guy to break the one-hand barbell snatch record, taught me how to do one-hand barbell snatches. (laughs) How cool was that? You know, he broke the record in something like 1934. And here he was at 84 years old teaching me how to do it in his kitchen. Wow. Yeah. It's really neat. When you were there in the 90s, was the York gym still so, uh, you know, accessible? Like you, you could just walk right into it or was the security higher then? Well, that's, that's a funny question, too, and goes right into how Atomic Athletic got its name. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started there, there was no York gym. It mm. had been closed down, and we were in the building uh, there with the rotating lifter uh, on the plant next door. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, until they brought me in, there were there was no lifting going on at York. Uh, they had closed down uh, Broad Street and Ridge Avenue uh, right. facilities. They still own the property, though, which is a really interesting thing. I was able to go into the original York gym that you see in the pictures. Uh, There's that great giant blown up photo of, I think it's Stanzik doing a clean uh, on the wall of the Weightlifting Hall of Fame Museum there. And I was able to go into that room before they knocked the building down. Uh, it, It was awesome. It is dangerous as heck too because there were holes in the floor and <laughs> I it, it was a wow. second floor weightlifting area, which is crazy. You know, it, mostly you see weightlifting facilities and the uh uh it's on a ground floor in a basement because if a yep. guy drops weights you don't want it going through the floor. This mm-hmm. is on a second floor. It, it was nuts. And this is the place that they lifted in in the forties and fifties. Uh, yeah, when I went there in '76, uh, and that's when I met John Grimmick, and I couldn't believe how accessible that gym was. You know, I forget how I got there so long ago, but whatever directions they told me, I just walked out and walked right into it. And Lee James, or I think who eventually won the silver medal, and another American lifter named Mark Cameron, they were in there training. And I think Smitty was there coaching him. I'm pretty sure it was Smitty, and I talked to him too, the coach. And um, you just walk right in the door. It's like I just walked down the street, followed the directions, walked in. There was no security. Walked in the gym, and there they were. And they 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 were as friendly as can be. And I spent the whole afternoon in there. And I was talking to Lee James and Mark Cameron. They were real nice. Talked to Smitty. It was just it was a great time. I just couldn't believe how accessible it was. Yeah, and, uh, you know, well, in 76, I would have been five years old, but uh, (laughs) I definitely, you know, I definitely met Lee James a number of times and uh, uh, met Mark Cameron once, and Mm -hmm. Smitty was their coach, and uh, uh, he was the guy, 
that, you know, people, you know, I would, when I was at York, I would talk to uh, Olympic Committee people from other countries and as well as our own country, of course. And I was sent to other countries and, you know, to do uh, work on behalf of York Barbell with them and did a lot of sales deals and came up with interesting ways to fund things and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it was a fascinating deal, but the one thing that was universally my ticket to talk to the actual decision makers is, mm-hmm. it, you know, I could say, oh, yeah, Smitty's my coach. And these international level people, you mean Dick Smith? Say, yeah. Oh, my God, he's the best coach in the world. Yep. And, it, you know, I see him in the gym with me three, four days a week and yep. had this access. It was really unbelievable when I think back on it. I interviewed him for Iron Nation. He put a chapter in for Iron Nation. It was just the information in there was so dense. He actually uh, laid out, edited, and uh, wrote the bulk of the Olympic lifting training and coaching manual uh, Mm. that was done in the 80s. You know, he literally wrote the book, if you you want to use that phrase. (laughs) And, you know, I've gone through my copy of it, which is just a Xerox copy. I'm so glad I did it at the time. And I can hear Smitty talking to me, saying Hmm. all these (laughs) (laughs) Smitty-isms. Jan Dellinger was there when you were there, right? Yes. And in fact, Jan was the one who said, you know, Raj, you've got the job that Arnold Schwarzenegger was denied. (laughs) Oh, so Jan told you that. Yes, Jan did. That is funny. Uh, Probably around 1970, maybe 1971 or two, uh, Mm -hmm. Arnold, who had already been in a lot of the magazines at that point, he was already, uh, you know, amateur and I think professional Mr. Universe and uh, he may or may not have gotten any of the Mr. Olympia titles yet at that point but uh, certainly was a feature guy in the magazine both for York and for Weeder. He had gotten to the United States and one of the places that he applied for a job was with Bob Hoffman. I don't think Hoffman thought that Schwarzenegger was unqualified. I think he right. just didn't have any jobs to fulfill at the time. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, so I, it's, uh, it, it is kind of a joke that, you know, I got the job that Arnold applied for, but, it, you know, it, <laughs> it was like 25 years later. So right. <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing. I, I was laughing yeah. when I heard that. I think I... Think I I think I actually saw it on your website. It's pretty cool. It's a cool line to have. Well, I, I try to keep some things light. Like I said, it, I can get somewhat intense with this stuff and really uh-huh. drilling down on the history. And, uh, it, you know, people think that Smitty uh, was all about, you know, lift, lift, lift. But it, it, he had a wonderful sense of humor. 
he, he was oh yeah he was a really funny guy and it, loved watching uh stand up comics and so on and so forth. He was and kind of self deprecating too, wasn't he? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember when I was interviewing him, I was like, this guy's a legend, but he was so down to earth and so friendly and joking, and he was just a pleasure to talk to. Yeah, it, you know, can I swear on this? Is it okay to say some uh, oh, yeah. off-color stuff here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if it's what happened, we want to hear what happened, right? Yeah, it, well, yeah, this is a really funny story. <laughs> I first started at York. I was there not even a week yet. And right. uh, I was in the store on the first floor. They were showing me around to all the equipment so that I could learn the product line for just as background, you know, sort of my onboarding for the job. And this old guy comes in wearing sunglasses and just coming off his motorcycle, right? And Smitty, I'm guessing he had to be maybe 72, something like that. And he walks in and he's, oh, you must be the new Olympic lifter they've hired. It's about time. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I'm the guy, I I guess. (laughs) He's 25 years old. And I didn't know who he was. And the guy working at the desk said, oh, this guy, Smitty, that I was telling you about. Uh, He says, he's the Olympic lifting coach. And Smitty says, well, yeah, but I'm a cow fucker from way back. I didn't know what to say. I was actually speechless. And I've never been speechless in my life. You've known me. I can talk. And... (laughs) I have this old guy saying, well, I'm a cow fucker from way back. I didn't even know how to respond. I'm sure I said something like, pardon me? And he says, before I became the coach here at York, I used to artificially inseminate cows for one of the local farms. I was like, wow, okay. And it just floored me. I'll never forget it. Smitty could make an impact on somebody. And, you know, I'm expecting this stodgy, I did this and I did that. Instead, I get that. And (laughs) that's what Smitty was like. And, you know, had there been women in the room or little kids, I'm sure he would have been more laid back. He was a very respectful person. But it, here I was, this 25-year-old kid, and completely clueless as to who he was. It, it, see, Bob, unlike yourself, where you knew that there was a York gym in yep. 1976, you could go to York and say, oh, can I see these guys lifting? Great. Me, in uh, the mid-'90s, uh, literally, Strength and Health magazine had been closed down be- the year I started high school. Right. 
So, and Hoffman was already dead, and the magazine was probably, I think uh, they, it was pretty much shut down by the time you had new ownership, and Grimmick was like, because Grimmick died in the late 90s, didn't he? So he must have been in the, in the last five years of his life when you were there. So the place it was totally like the last years of his life, I think, maybe the last three. So yeah, uh, it, it was totally you know, changed when you got there, right? Oh yeah, it, you know when we got there. Well, when I got there, because Jan had been there for years. Um, Phil Redman, who did the artwork, had been there for years. Uh, it the uh, there was new ownership. That's why they brought me on. And right. they were wanting to get re, a recertified barbell set and start selling internationally. So mm-hmm. because of my political experience and the fact that I was a real Olympic lifter, like I competed, and yep. it, you know, at that time, for senior age lifters, there weren't even 700 registered senior age lifters. And senior age kind of refers to like, competitive age you know occasionally you get the master's age guy who's still competitive and the junior age guy who's an up-and-comer and he's already competitive but basically i think then because i changed the rules then a little bit but yep. it was like 21 to 35 was senior age so for senior age lifters there were less than 700 of us in the united wow. states at the time yeah so you think of somebody who is willing to move to York, which I was because I had uh, been in graduate school in Washington, D.C., so it wasn't that far away. Yeah, I may not have even have moved in at York yet because it, it was so quickly that I met you. You know, I had a... a uh, was living in a rental house in Wheaton, Maryland, and right. it, then got an apartment in York. And mm-hmm. they, uh, there was nobody there at York who did the Olympic lifts when I got there. Mm. You, know, you had Smitty, who was fully retired at that point, and they brought him back on as a part-time thing uh, with the job of... Uh, like consultant or something? Yeah, like a consultant, or I don't know what his official title was, but the only official things that he did were give tours of the Weightlifting Hall of Fame, which Mm -hmm. was actually falling into disrepair at that point. Yeah, because even when I was there, it, it it wasn't really disrepair in the 70s, but it wasn't as... I was expecting it to be more, put it that way. A little, little sure bit disappointing. Little disappointing, you know. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad now it's a. I, I, I haven't been back there, but I, I've heard that now it's a lot nicer. Well, it, you know, the guys who took over and bought out the company while I was there, where Jan and Phil and I all lost our jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys actually did invest quite a bit into the Hall of Fame and they put an addition on the building where there was a gym put in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had actually personally helped out in starting to put together the new gym. And then those guys fully bought out the rest of the company and put all their own people in and 
that sort of thing. Uh, but I me, wish somebody would take over that company and bring it back to its full glory. You know, it's like I think they're they're better now than they were ten years ago. Remember, for a while there, their bars were breaking and they just, their reputation uh, was just getting uh, ruined. It's like they were just crap. You know, but I think now just recently they're getting better, but it's still not the well, same. It's like. Uh, if you remember Harley Davidson back in the seventies and uh, yes. the seventies, you weren't even you were just like two years old. But Har- yeah, Harley Davidson is Harley, so. yeah, well <laughs> Harley's similar to York. I mean Harley's been a great name, and then they fell into the same kind of condition that York fell into. And in the seventies, that they went bankrupt, but some right. multi-millionaire bike fanatic bought the company out of love he loved harley and loved yep. motorcycles and he bought the company and he brought it back to better than ever you know and it's, it's like i wish somebody like you know kim wood or someone like that you know if i had the money i'd do it but if, if someone who knows the iron game and who has the money someone who would just love to fix york i mean just you know, not just make them any old barbell company, make them great again. I mean, I would love that. Right. I mean, that would be just so awesome. Well, the current owner who owns York Fitness International out of Canada, and he's a great mm-hmm. guy, uh, I met him when I worked for York. Uh, and right. at the time, I told him he should buy the company. He ultimately bought the company around 2005, I think. And mm-hmm. the guys who had bought it out while I worked there, had sold it off to a Chinese company and where they were starting to have problems with their bars and things for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so so that's when the bars were breaking and stuff. I remember. I, I was like, yeah. what a shame this is. Yeah, that was the Chinese. And oh. it, it was... It, you know, when Bill bought the company, and I, I know all about this because I talked to Bill, I still, you know, I, uh, I do consulting for him a little bit here and there and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, he dealt with that immediately. And, it, you know, he's just a really, he's a good businessman. Uh, the bars are made in North America again. They're, you know, while he's got a Canadian company, he's just in Toronto. Uh, mm-hmm. And the York facility in York, Pennsylvania is still there. He loves the Hall of Fame. Uh, they still manufacture products there. I, I shouldn't say they still do. They once again manufacture products there. So, hmm. uh, you know, he's been gradually bringing a lot of that back to York. But you know what? When the Chinese, and not to be China bashing, but they did some very stereotypical things when they came in. They bought the company for the purpose of taking the machine shop and all the tooling and taking the foundry and all the tooling and moving it over to China. And when Bill bought the place, it was full of, as he put it, a lot of metal crap. Mm-hmm. And it, wow. it really was. And quite a bit of it, got melted down into his foundry in uh, Toronto because it, you know, wasn't up to his standards of quality. And Hmm. since then, things have been great. Bill owns York Fitness International, and he had the rights to sell and produce in Canada, England, South Africa, Australia, 
and maybe a couple other places. And yeah. Because I was the sport guy as well as the Olympic lifting guy. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sell into some of these countries that he had the rights to. I organized, uh, it, you know, him getting together with the management at that time to uh, allow his products to be sold in the United States and us to sell into his country. Uh, it, it was quite an interesting thing because I found out that he had actually bought the company mm-hmm. here in the U.S. from the Chinese. Uh, I immediately called him up, and I think I had his home phone number. And he said, Rod, you're still in the industry? This is great. And I, and I said, well, can I be a dealer? He says, of course. You know, it, you know, start selling all this stuff. So, you know, today, you know, I've been a York dealer since then. And I, it, it was such a negative thing when the new guys bought us out and we all lost our jobs. But I said I would never yeah. sell York product again. And, uh, you know, I've been selling it for, I'd say, 10 years now. Some of the other people that you met there uh, have been tied very closely to Ziegler. Could you give us your uh, input on what your views are about the drug issue there? Yes. Um, I actually know quite a bit about that. Uh, You know, Doc Ziegler, for those of you who don't know, uh, was the team doctor in the late 50s. So when he saw what the Russians were doing, and they were all of a sudden much stronger athletes, but he saw some weirdness going on. And, you know, guys having to be catheterized to pee. Um, You know, 20-year-old guy needing to be catheterized to pee, and he's Hmm. saying, you know, what's going on here? So he quite literally went to the bar after one of the meets with the Russian coaches. And the Russian coaches said, oh, you know, we're crushing you guys because uh, we've found this secret formula and, you know, we're manipulating the testosterone level. And Doc, being a naturally inquisitive person and a researcher, uh, had links to Seba, the pharmaceutical company, and they came up with a formula for what they thought at the time would have been, as Smitty said, enzymes that were the key to strength. And with his artificial uh, testosterone, as they called it, uh, where they manipulated the molecular formula, uh, it was supposed to do away with a bunch of SIBA because they had the lab for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, started uh, trial run production of Dianabol. And, it, you know, in some of the literature, they'll talk about little blue pills. Well, that's what it was. And Doc Ziegler thought that it would be great to not just test on burn victims because they were having real problems with uh, things like burn victims 
uh, so Siba had been testing this new formula on them, and Doc said, you know, what if we, he knew Hoffman? And he, because he was a team doctor, he said, you know, what if we tried it on people who were the supermen of the time? There were several lifters who would go down to Doc Ziegler's facility, and it was a very simple uh, methodology for the testing. Lightweights got five milligrams, middleweights got 10, and heavyweights got 15. And uh, it, you know, it was scientific testing for the time, for today's usage. Oh my God, not even remotely uh, scientific because, you know, scientific methodology and statistics and things like that have really moved on. When I was in the uh, PhD program at SUNY Stony Brook, we looked at a lot of statistical methods. And when I saw this, I'm like, really? This is what they were doing? But a lot of these statistical methods, even the math, hadn't been developed until the 1980s. So, you know, for for the time period, the testing was what it was. And very quickly, Doc found out that some lifters were getting these pills from the pharmacy uh, surreptitiously, and they were screwing up his testing, which was based on uh, medical dosages for the time period, because they were already giving it to the burn victims and some geriatrics and so on and so forth, and they were being sold in pharmacies. They weren't illegal at all at the time. Very quickly, the word got out that what was going on with some of these lifters where they were having immense gains. Is it true, based on the people you've talked to, that that the isometric movement, remember isometrics were big right around the same time, right around the early 60s. Now, I've heard that that was a cover story to kind of uh, give a reason or give an ex- give a, a reason or an excuse for these sudden swift increases in the poundages people were lifting. Because if they couldn't quite explain how these lifts were suddenly rapidly going up, and uh, they would just they would use the isometrics as a cover story and not say a new pill. Is that true? Uh, no, they. What you had at the time is you had uh, two totally unrelated events that were happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know. So whether on, whether it was or not, it 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 whether it was or not, it still was a convenient thing to say then. So, well, you had guys doing isometric training, right? And uh, York had invented this idea of the power rack and the concepts of training with a power rack, mm-hmm. and which were not new. John Grimmick was doing that kind of training with chains hanging from his mom's attic ceiling. Yep. Uh, and Paul Anderson did that stuff too. Uh, yeah, Anderson did that, the chains hanging from his trees in his yard. <laughs> Yeah, and Bob Peoples did it for deadlifting where he was uh, 
they, you know, he dug a pit and mm-hmm. did partial lifts and isometrics and that sort of thing. And if you look at things like the Kennedy lift, the hip lift, the hand and thigh lift, uh, the partial, they had a big two-story uh, sort of hand and thigh machine at York in the late 1940s that even Steve Reeves used. Hmm. So it, you had, and there are photos of this, they, they exist. So what York did, and it was a natural progression, you know, you had guys like Paul Anderson who definitely was not taking the drugs when he won uh, the Olympics because he couldn't have. They didn't take Right, they weren't even around then. They right. they were around, but only the Russians had them. I mean, we didn't know about well, them until and the, the drugs, late 50s. Right, and the drugs that the Russians had were causing extreme health problems. So mm-hmm. actually impossible for Paul Anderson to have been taking them. It was right. well known that Paul Anderson was doing partial lifts and isometrics. Mm-hmm. What a power rack was is a way to systematically measure and hone the concept of partials and isometrics. And they came up with this uh, methodology at the same time, you happen to have some guys starting to take the drugs. Right. So if people, you know, a lot of people have said that, oh, the power rack doesn't really work. Isometrics don't work. Partials don't work. Well, they're wrong. It does. And you've got all kinds of guys throughout the history of strongmanism, powerlifting, Olympic lifting, the odd lifts, all that kind of stuff, who did that kind of training, and it worked. The power rack is, in Smitty's mind, the single best training tool other than an Olympic barbell for doing that type of work. Now, unfortunately, some of the guys who were being used for the power rack work were also taking the steroids they showed what were probably even more dramatic gains than they would have had uh, because they were doing both things, both of which actually worked. Now, the problem with the steroids, and this is where Doc Ziegler quickly realized he had opened Pandora's box, but early on, and you still get it some today, you'll have these guys, well, you'll have people, take these performance-enhancing drugs, and then they're sitting in front of the TV waiting for these things to work. Well, of course you got to lift. Yeah, I mean, like, you don't just exactly. eat. No pill is going to make you stronger. you got to lift. It's like like you got to give these guys credit. Like when people call me and want they want to train or some people are looking for gimmicks, yeah, I mean, you have to, even if you're going to be a Mr. Olympia and you're taking tons of drugs, you right. have to, work your ass off and you have to have great genetics because there's thousands of people who work their ass off and have great genetics and are taking the drugs, but only a very few are going to be good enough to compete for the Mr. Olympia. So 
of yeah, they're 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 all drug users, and you know, to me, yeah. I don't like them just because they're drug users. But uh, as yeah, far as they, the, the work and cool. the dedication and the effort, they still yes, they still have to do that. They still have to work their ass off and be dedicated and work hard and lift hard and eat right and use the drugs. But yeah, just taking the drugs, of course. It's like I can't believe there's dumb people out there who would think that just taking steroids is going to get you big. I mean, there's, I guess I guess there are dumb people out there who think that, right? <laughs> it's unbelievable. Let's just let, let's just watch TV and take steroids and get big, right? <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I, I collect stupid people stories about the world of weightlifting, and yes, there are people who believe. It. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. But uh, it, no, all of what you're saying is true. Because, right. you know, for example, you know, the genetic thing, in a very simplistic manner, I can point out to people the genetic thing. You know, yep. I chose to go into Olympic lifting because I was watching the Olympics and saw, this is when they would actually show Olympic lifting on television for the Summer Olympics, and I happened to be watching when they had the lightweight guys on and they mm-hmm. said how tall these guys were and what their body weights were. And the guy said at the time, you know, these guys aren't going to be playing basketball. These guys are the strongest guys in the world. And yeah. it, it, I said, wait a minute. I'm five foot three. And at the time I was about 145 pounds. And I thought, Wow. And I was in great shape. I was an athlete in high school and so on and lifted starting at uh, 10 or 11 years old with my great grandfather's mm-hmm. Milo triplex step. Uh, so I saw this and I said, wow, I should try that sport. And it was a conscious thing on my part. And I called up Dr. Right. Bob Sahita, who's putting on the event for Shemansky, and he got me into it just because my dad knew him from college. It is one of those happy accidents that sometimes happens to people. And my dad had lifted, uh, not competitively, but even back in the 60s, he was a Taekwondo instructor in Detroit. And he lifted from, you know, he read Strength and Health magazine and read about John Grimmick and was a fan of all this stuff and use what was my great-grandfather's Milo Triplex himself. I'm, you know, I'm the fourth generation to use that barbell. I know you're a strong little bastard. I've seen you. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you pick up those rocks. I've, I've seen you pick up those granite rocks, and the rock's like bigger than you. Yeah, well, and you know what? Uh, a year and a half ago, whatever it was, I... I actually decided, I think it was two years ago, I decided that I was going to try for a record that I don't know if anybody else had ever done and probably nobody cares about. But uh, I was going to press a granite ball greater than my own body weight. I clean and press a 162.5-pound granite ball weighing, that morning I weighed 160.5 pounds. And, wow, that's awesome, Roger. Yeah, 
is really cool. So, you know, you had asked about the uh, uh, dyno training and things like that, and do I do it? Yeah. I do mm-hmm. whatever works best. What yep. I don't do is drugs. Um, I made a conscious choice to not do the drugs, and they were offered to me in high school, and I said no, and I did research and decided it was the right decision. And then when I met Smitty, because Smitty literally was one of the guys handing out the drugs early on in the testing. As but a, he didn't really know what he was doing then, though. He didn't really understand it. He thought there no. were enzymes or something. He didn't know the, that they were the type of definition that we have now that are steroids back then. No, Nobody knew what they were then. And right. He was they thought there was some research, type of super vitamin or something. Right. He was a research assistant. No different than somebody working in any lab today uh, injecting mice with some new uh, anti-plague drug or whatever. So, you know, there are some people who say, uh, Smitty and Doc Ziegler were these evil guys. No, they weren't. They were doing a benefit for society, and it just happened that this thing that they tested opened Pandora's box. Right. And I know the real story because Smitty was there, um, I'm friends with Bill St. John, who's still alive. Uh, probably Bill will be at Shemansky's dinner. Um, Bill was uh, Doc Ziegler's day-to-day assistant and traveled around the country and the world with him and so on and so forth. Uh, Doc Ziegler, once he realized the Pandora's box he had opened, became against using those things for anything but very specific medical needs and got into different research. And, you know, one of the things that he got into was electrostimulation. And, you know, a lot of people have used TENS units at uh, chiropractic offices. Mm -hmm. Doc Ziegler came up with what was probably the very best one ever, which apparently was also used by NASA and uh, the U.S. military for uh, exercising uh, submarine crews mm-hmm. uh, when they had to be underwater in a submarine for six months at a shot, uh, all that kind of thing. In fact, uh, President Kennedy was one of his clients where he did rehab for Kennedy's bad back uh, with mm-hmm. the uh, Isotron, which was the name he gave to uh, Electrostim unit. It's fantastic. I've used it myself. It, it's There's nothing else like it even today. But, uh, you know, this was a research product that he was involved in. They tried it out. And then the athletes themselves started self-medicating. And, uh, you know, today it's an illegal thing to use, um, you know, it, medically, you can, it, well, not medically, but legally, you can go to jail if you are a steroid user and distributor that does not have a prescription, and rightfully right. so. Yep. So, it, you know, so it, the drugs have screwed up the sport. It, 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 right, you know, right, you've right. got these people who are cheaters. Well, and, it, you know, in 1960, they weren't cheaters because they didn't know 
what it was. Right. After they found out and they made a conscious decision um, and it became illegal to boot and the different uh, organizing committees, you know, the Olympic Committee and the different bodybuilding organizations started making them illegal and saying, look, if you use this, you are cheating. Well, right, the Hel- the Helsinki Olympics opened up everybody's eyes because the Russians who got them from the Germans after the war, and they, they were the first ones to use steroids in sports because yeah. the, the Germans were using them for their troops in battle. And then after the war, the yep. Russians found this out, gave them to their athletes for the first time. And then in Helsinki, we're like, holy shit, what happened? Because the Russians, before the, before the war, the Russians sucked. They weren't... You know, they they weren't they good at all. Out. And then, we, yeah, then all of a sudden, after the war, they're, like, beating us. We're like, what? <laughs> something's got to be going on, right? So we we knew something was going on. It just took us several years to figure it out. Yeah, and the Russians, uh, it, you know, you have to give them credit for taking the best ideas from wherever they could. Uh, you know, Shemansky got the gold medal as... I guess it was called light heavyweight at the time. I think it was a 90 kilo class. Um, mm-hmm. Set the world record in the press, the snatch, and the clean and jerk, and thus the total. And he was a splitter. Well, I believe in Helsinki, all but maybe one of the Russians were squatters. Well, mm-hmm. they had filmed Shemansky, and they were like, oh my God, look at this guy. The next, the next world championship, you had a bunch of splitters there. And mm-hmm. the next Olympics is all splitters. Well, you know, Shemansky, that style just suited him. And, uh, you know, there's Shemansky has a great way of stating things. He's a really mm-hmm. funny guy. It, it, one of the best quotes I've got for him uh if you're good at something, you should stick with it. That's what I say. You know, that's, yeah. That's a, that's a great quote. It is a great quote. It's simple and truthful. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a guy who, you know, was the last guy to uh, lift the Apollon bar. Hmm. Wow, that's cool. You know, and the guy cleaned it with a clean grip, not an alternate grip like Davis had to use. Um, mm-hmm. but, and, and then jerked it three times, it, it, you know, right in a row. A really amazing thing. Uh, but, it, you know, the splitting suited him. Could he do, like, some squat cleans? Yeah, he absolutely could. In fact, I think he did, like, 445 or something for a squat clean and jerk. Uh but he was better with the split. He could also do continental style. That's like, it, you know, if you, you look into the USAWA, the all-round association rules, you can see how to do those kinds of things. It, it's pretty cool. But the Russians took things that worked, and they really didn't care too much about the long-term results for their athletes. You know, it, to say that, their lifters had to be catheterized to pee while they're training at the Olympics. That's pretty serious. Win medal for Mother Russia. That's all they care yeah. about. Yeah, exactly. 
you had jokes about you know the East German female swimmers and so on and so forth. You know, having to do a sex test on. Well, they'd, they'd yeah. be right in style now. Roger, you're, you're a wealth of information, so we're gonna have to do this again because we're yeah we've we've gone we've gone over an hour and we, you got so much more to say. I mean, we'll have to do this again and uh, and keep this going. And um, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up and we're gonna have Roger Lapointe part two soon. And Roger, it was yeah. a pleasure to speak with you. And I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, everyone out there, if you want great strength equipment. You have to go to Roger's website and see his great equipment at AtomicAthletic.com. That's A-T-O-M-I-C, Athletic.com. And thanks again, Roger, for being on the show. Well, thanks, Bob. It's been great. Don't be a flamingo. You have to do your squats. Don't be a flamingo. Real lifters work their legs. That's going to do it for this edition of Natural Strength Night on MindForceRadio.com. Please bookmark that website, MindForceRadio.com. Bob is always looking for new writers for NaturalStrength.com who are old school hardcore, write with passion, and have a strong anti-steroid stance. He also wants your training questions so they can be answered on the show. Please send your articles and training questions to Bob at mindforceradio at earthlink.net. Thanks for listening. See you next time.